you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who live in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. morning. How good are baptisms, hey? So good. Uh, as Matt said, if you do want to get baptised, please head to koa.co forward slash connect. We would love to celebrate with you, particularly at Easter. That'll be our next lot of baptisms. So if you haven't done that, it'd be a great time to let us know that you're keen. Uh, we're in Joshua chapter 9 this morning, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, and as you do that, I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we we ask you to speak to us now through your word. Make us more like Jesus. Make us more grateful for him. Help us live well in the world for his glory through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. The train is going quick. The brakes don't work and you're driving. Don't ask me why. I said it was a terrible idea. But as you realize the problem, 
you see two things that make it so much worse. The first is that on the tracks ahead of you, five men tied down, helpless. You're heading straight for them. The second thing you see, though, gives you a little bit of hope that, that just before those five men tied to the tracks is a little turnoff. If you were to pull just the right lever at just the right time, the train would swerve and save their lives. And so it seems like a no-brainer. You, you go to pull the lever, but just before you do, you spy it out of the corner of your eye. On the alternate track, also tied down, Harry. Harry wearing his guitar and everything. <laughs> and so now you've got a problem. You, you could do nothing. Wipe your hands of the whole situation and run over the five men, or you could pull the lever, turn the train, crush Harry, and perhaps even more importantly, ruin his guitar. What do you do? Well, this is the trolley problem. The famous old philosophy conundrum which has plagued first-year classrooms for decades in universities all over the world. It's a way of testing your moral framework and discovering what you think is important in making decisions like this. Is it doing the most good for the most people? Obviously, you save the most lives and let Harry die. Or is it more about action versus inaction? If you did nothing, that would be preferable, because then at least it's not your fault. And then there's so many variations on this problem that moral philosophy professors just delight to pose to their students. What if the one person was a family member of yours? Would that make a difference? What if some of the people are young and some were old? What if some were rich and some were poor? What if, what if one was a doctor and the five had vanity license plates? The whole point of the trolley problem is it's a problem. It, it reveals a lot about your moral framework, but, but you're never going to make a decision that makes you satisfied. It's not solvable. You have to choose something, but you're never going to feel like you absolutely nailed it. It's, in the technical sense, a dilemma. Now, it's unlikely you find yourself exactly in that situation. But you will face dilemmas. They're just a part of life, whether we like it or not. The thousands of little decisions we make each day are full of them. I'm not talking about the kind of decisions where you know what's right and what's wrong and you just want to do the one that's wrong. That's not a dilemma. That's just us being us. I'm talking about the decisions where it's not immediately obvious which is the right choice to make, like how you consume your music, where you buy your clothes, if you donate money and how much and who to. These are all the kind of decisions we need to make regularly. You, you may never find yourself driving a train where the brakes don't work, but many of us would face the conundrum of the morning coffee. You walk into the cafe and suddenly all the questions pop into your head. Are these beans sustainably farmed? Were they purchased 
using fair trade principles, was the cow well treated or should I go for an alternative milk? What about the local business? Am I supporting a small business owner or is this from a much larger company? Are the staff who made it getting paid properly and should I tip them or not? Sorry to ruin your week <laughs> with all those questions. I used to go to a cafe that thought very hard about all of these questions. The problem was, by the time they'd answered them all, a small latte was roughly $6. And suddenly I had a whole other moral dilemma. Is it okay to pay $6 for a coffee? Which is not a decision I'm ready for, because I hadn't had my coffee yet. Now, that's kind of a trivial example, though. There are much bigger, much harder dilemmas we face as well. If you've ever had to make a decision about life support, you can imagine that that can be full of unbearable complexity. The fact of the matter is that life on earth is complicated. It's full of dilemmas, dilemmas, little and large. And I want to start here this morning because as we open Joshua chapter 9, I think we see something like a moral dilemma for God's people. So I want to look at it this morning and then see if God's Word has any guidance for us as we face our own dilemmas. I've got two headings to help us navigate these verses and then a third section where I want to make a few observations that might help us make these kind of decisions. Does it sound okay? You happy to go down this philosophical rabbit hole for a while this morning? Get some nods? Great. Okay, well, as Olivia Newton-John nearly said, let's get metaphysical. You ready? <laughs> My kids think I'm hilarious. <laughs> All right, heading one, part one, from verse one, the cunning plan. Would you lie to save your life? The Gibeonites would. Here's their situation. Joshua and the Israelites have just taken Jericho. The walls have fallen, and then last week we saw, after a little bit of tripping on their shoelaces, they've also taken the city of Ai, and and all the nations in the Promised Land, all those people are getting seriously worried. You see it in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9. As soon as all the kings from all the places heard what had happened, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. They form an alliance together, all of their might, against God's people, except for one city, who decide to try something a little bit different in verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning. Here's what they did. They played dress-ups. They put on their glasses and fake moustache and tried to fool Israel. They put on old, worn-out clothes, old, worn-out bags. They even made their bread look worn and stale so that it looked to everybody like they had traveled a long way to meet the Israelites. And here's why that's significant, because Because they know Israel has come to take the land, all of the promised land, including Gibeon. And so Israel's not allowed to make a covenant with anyone from the promised land. But the Gibeonites figure, if we look like we've come from even further away, 
If we look like we're not from here, this is not our land, we're from a far off distant country, then maybe we've got a chance of making a treaty. So in verse 6, they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Now at first glance, we kind of know what Israel should do. We, we get a sense they probably should say no because we know from earlier in the story that God is deeply, deeply concerned for his people's holiness. He wants them to be set apart, to be different, to be pure in a way that none of the nations around them are pure. He wants them to be holy because he is holy. And they're his people. And so to help them on that journey, he gives them some clear instructions, notably in Deuteronomy chapter 7, some really clear instructions for exactly this moment. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. See, Israel are not to let any other nations join their cause at this moment because because they've tried it before. And it went so badly. They got stuck in intermarriage. They they were full of compromise. They ended up worshipping other gods and completely lost their way. And it just seems like Israel cannot simply dip their toe in the water without completely falling in headfirst to the raging river of sin and compromise. And so what they ought to do, if they knew who had asked them for a covenant, is say no. But they're fooled by their disguises. They take the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And and we might give them a break. We might kind of think, well, fair enough. It's not the Israelites' fault that they were lied to. What were they supposed to do? The answer's in verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They break bread with the Gibeonites, but they should have prayed first. They should have asked God for wisdom. The narrator can't help himself but sprinkle this little detail in to make sure everybody knows Israel's done at least one thing wrong in this scenario. They've made at least one mistake. They should have prayed, but they didn't. So it's no surprise what happens next. In verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. Now we've got a problem, which leads us to part two, the moral dilemma. The ship has officially sailed. Israel now has a covenant with a people they're not supposed to covenant with. And now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, Gibeon, like the rest of the cities in the promised land, should be the enemy, right? But on the other, now they've got an agreement a treaty, a covenant, a promise. And these things really, really matter. God's people can't break their promises. 
And so the question is, what should they do next? We don't know when, or sorry, we don't know how they discovered that the Gibeonites lied to them. We just know it didn't take very long. Three days into this new covenant, the cat is out of the bag. And, and so Israel marches to the land of the Gibeonites, which funnily enough does, does not take very long because they're basically neighbors. And Joshua confronts them. He asks, why did you deceive us? In verse 24, we see what's going on for them. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. What they're saying is, we believe your God is strong. He does what he says, and, and we were afraid. And so as they confront the Gibeonites, Israel has two choices. Do they choose holiness or mercy? Make no mistake, this unfortunate decision they're faced with is a mess of their own making. They should have prayed, we know that. But now that they're here, what's the right thing to do? And the answer is, I don't know. Israel chooses to let them live. They make them servants, servants even in the temple, which seems like a place of honor. But the whole episode leaves us a little bit confused. Because it's not that clear that Israel has done the right thing. But it's also not that clear that they've done the wrong thing. It, it really is hard to say. I've read several commentators on this passage this week, and they've all said the same thing. I don't know. So where does that leave us as we think about chapter 9? Well, I think if you're looking for the good guys and the bad guys in Joshua chapter 9, you won't find any. If you want to know if Israel did the right thing by keeping this covenant or not, the answer is... It's complicated. But I think that's great. Because it's honest. Because isn't that you too? Aren't you also a complex being? A big old jumble of mixed motives all the time? I am. And so for the Bible to speak about that complexity without smoothing it over and making it overly simplistic is just refreshingly authentic. People are complicated. So many of the characters in the Bible are good and bad, just like you and me. In fact, the Bible presents us with a picture of humanity that is far better and far worse than we could imagine at exactly the same time. And because we're like that, it's just no wonder that life is full of dilemmas. It's full of complicated situations and people and decisions where we just don't know 
if there's a right or a wrong way of doing things. Our moral landscape is always partly cloudy. So what do we do with that? As Christians, how do we approach life under the sun with all of its grey? That brings me to the third heading, being Christian in a complex world. As we think about Joshua 9 and the complexity we find there, as we wrestle with the dirt and confusion and intricacy of our own lives, I want to suggest that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole story of God's people, speaks into the mud. And I think it has at least three things to offer us. So I want to make three observations about our moral dilemmas. The first one is this, the gospel solves Israel's dilemma. At the very heart of the Christian message is kind of a dilemma. And it's similar to the choice that Israel faces in Joshua chapter 9, holiness or mercy. Because on the one hand, what's true for Israel in needing to be holy is even more true for God. He cannot help but to be white, hot, holy. So for an unholy thing to approach the holy God it is like a moth trying to kiss the sun. It's just fundamentally incompatible. You have a real problem if you're trying to make that work because God and holiness cannot go together, which means you have a problem. You're not holy. Sorry. The Bible's pretty clear about you and me that this is a big problem for us. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think deep down we all kind of know that, don't we? That all does resonate with us. If you don't think that that's you, if you genuinely think that you might be perfect, maybe ask someone who knows you well. Like a sibling or a spouse would be perfect. we're not holy, which means on our own, we don't belong anywhere near a holy God. And that could be the end of it. But there's an enormous spanner thrown into the works, and it's this. God just really, really loves you. See, often we can think of God as a judge in a courtroom, and the Bible even speaks of him in that way. And that emphasizes God's justice, which is a really important part of who he is. But, but I want to say, if that's the only view you ever have of God in your mind, it's only half the picture. It's going to lead you to a wrong and grumpy view of God. Because if we're to see God as a judge in a courtroom, we have to also acknowledge that it's as though his own child is in the docks. His own treasured offspring is the defendant. And so a good judge must be just. 
But here is a judge who really, really wants to forgive your unholiness. And so there's something of a dilemma in that. He can't just forget about your sins. That would make him a bad judge and violate his holiness. But, but he's full of mercy. He wants to bring you close. And so here's what he did. He solved the moral dilemma. He sent Jesus, who lived the perfectly holy life, to come and suffer the punishment that your unholiness, my unholiness, deserved. So that the unholy ones like you and me can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Unholy people can come to a holy God. Romans 3 speaks of this again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Get this, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God finds a way to be just and the justifier, a good judge who can also make us not guilty anymore and set us free. And that's our way through. Faced with the choice between holiness and mercy, we get the cross. And you cannot look at the cross and say, God doesn't punish sin. You cannot look at Jesus dying, suffering that penalty and say that God is not holy or that he's corrupt or that he's a bad judge. The price is paid, every cent of it. But he pays it himself so that you don't have to and I don't have to. And and so you cannot look at the cross and say that God is not merciful because here he finds a way to make us clean. He punishes sin. He just doesn't punish us. And the cross is where judgment and mercy meet. Here's what that has to do with Joshua chapter 9. At its heart, there seems to be a tension in this passage between the holiness and the mercy that God's people could choose to extend. But in Christ, this side of the cross, we can say with confidence that tension no longer exists because that dilemma has been solved for us. At the end of the day, we can say, mercy won. Holiness didn't lose. God's still holy, but mercy wins out. And thousands of years later, that continues to have massive implications for us. Which brings me to the second observation The gospel solves some of our dilemmas. If you're anything like me, you read Joshua 9 and you see the decision they're forced to make and you kind of lean one way. You see the fear of the Gibeonites and think, let's just let them in. 
can't we? Let's just, let's just let this one slide. Let's just show them mercy. And I want to encourage you, go with that instinct. Because that's exactly what we should be like as a church. Is that what Israel should have done with the Gibeonites? Well, it, it's complicated, but, but here's the thing. What was complicated for them doesn't have to be complicated for us. Because we see the cross, where judgment and mercy are satisfied and mercy wins out. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, he gets in trouble all the time for hanging out with the wrong kind of people, doesn't he? Look at Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They're the worst kind of people. And when the Pharisees, the religious teachers, saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Should he really be breaking bread with these people? I mean, they probably have the holiness and fidelity of God's people in mind when they pose this question. Should we let them in? Are they the right sort? But when Jesus heard it in verse 12, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Suddenly we start to get some direction for our own decisions about holiness and mercy. There is no wrong sort to bring to Jesus. As we think about reaching out to our community or our friends or our world, we do not ask where people have come from. When we baptize people, there's no holiness test to get in. We just trust the mercy of God and open the doors. And so if you're thinking about who might need the gospel of Jesus, the answer is everyone. Not just the middle class. Not just the morally upright. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. It's the broken and the sick and the hurting. But the cross can cover anyone. This mercy is for all. So, so we tell anyone who will listen. Whether they live in a penthouse or a penitentiary, whether they're in a nursery or a nursing home, it doesn't matter the color of their collar, they all need the mercy of Christ. And so we go. This covenant is for everyone. Nobody is too far off. And yet at the same time, we don't need to choose between holiness and mercy. And we never, ever have to compromise our own godliness for the sake of evangelism. For some reason, some of us seem to have picked up the idea along the way that if we were just to swear more, or, or drink more, or, or gossip more, we'd have a better chance of reaching people with the gospel. 
as if the problem in people coming to Christ was that Christians aren't cool enough somehow. That's such a small view of God. This God overcame sin. He defeated Satan and his demons. He beat death. Do you really think he's going to find a problem of perception insurmountable? He's taken sinners and he's made them his righteous children. That's what he does. And he did not need to sin to do it. And so neither do we. This is just two simple ways that we start to get guidance from the gospel about facing our moral dilemmas. And I want to say this very clearly. It doesn't solve all of the complexity. Being a Christian doesn't make all of your decisions easy, but you might be surprised how often it helps. If you're driving the train without brakes, that feels like an impossible situation. But remember this, Harry's a believer in Jesus. Death is not the end for him. So sorry, mate. But the gospel unlocks so many possibilities in living for Christ, doesn't it? I don't want to overpromise and say Jesus is the answer to every question, but he does help with lots of them. And then there's the other ones where, where it is just complicated. And, and when that's the case, when the dilemmas come, please, never let it be said that we did not inquire of the Lord. Let's pray at least. Let's ask the God of all wisdom for a little bit of that wisdom. Because to fail to do that, that, that's just dumb, isn't it? That's like trying to do long division without a calculator. There's just literally no point anymore. God has made it possible to approach the throne of grace with confidence and ask him questions. So let's do it. He even invites us. In James 1, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So if you're confused, start with prayer. If you're faced with a dilemma, pray. If you're faced with a mess of your own making, bring it to the Lord, because he promises to give you wisdom. Maybe it's not the clear answer to your question that you're hoping for, but but maybe that's okay. Maybe he just gives you all you need to take the next step in a way that honors him. As the band comes up, I want to make one final observation. It's this. The gospel allows us to choose complexity over chaos. As a young lad, I did an arts degree. I didn't think I'd need any transferable skills. <laughs> Turns out I was right. But I loved philosophy. I ended up majoring in philosophy. And, and when I told people I was a philosophy student, it was interesting how many, peop- how many people assumed that would be really difficult for me as a Christian. Oh, that must be really tough to hold on to your faith. And parts of it were tricky, right? It, it could be confusing or complicated, because say what you will about Nietzsche, he's just much smarter than I am. 
But the longer I went on through this philosophy degree, the more it became crystal clear that it was so much easier for me than for all of my peers. Because I had a clear and grounded faith. I had a firm foundation on which I stood. And I watched as all of my friends who'd never faced the tough questions of life had their worldview completely crumble in their hands as soon as they started asking serious questions. I'll never forget doing a unit called The Meaning of Life, which seemed ambitious for a 10-week trimester. But we were excited. It was a first-year unit. We didn't really know anything, and so we thought, this is going to be great. Solve a whole lot of my questions. We turned up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It was incredible how many people left that in silence with tears running down their face. Because it turns out the big question at the bottom of that rabbit hole, the best that this philosophy department could offer us was whether or not suicide was the best response to the meaninglessness of life. And my friends knew they didn't want to do that. But they realized their way of seeing the world couldn't give them a robust reason why not. It was empty. And they learned that when you cannot identify what your life is for, when you do not know why you exist or where you came from, if you have no idea what happens next, then life is terrifying. It's full of dilemmas and contradictions, and at its core, it is completely chaotic. Suddenly, the idea of choosing a coffee might just be enough to drive you insane. But when you know the God who made you, when you know that he really, really loves you, when you know that he died to save you so that you might enjoy him for all eternity, then life becomes so deeply meaningful, so incredibly valuable, even though it keeps being confusing. It's still complex, but, but all of a sudden, it's not total chaos because there's a meaning a purpose, a direction, and a beauty to living. And so I want to say, if you're trying to make a fist of life without any God in the picture, without the God of the Bible in the center, then, then I reckon you can just do so much better. You can have a more robust way of seeing the world that, that not only makes more sense but offers more hope. Being a Christian won't make life simple, but it makes living possible and even beautiful. In some of life's dilemmas, it provides a way through the mess, and when it doesn't, at least it gives you someone you can turn to with your confusion. More than that, 
it gives you a way out of the mess that you've made of your life. And a way out of the mess that I have made of mine. So in all that chaos, let let me make it as simple as I possibly can. God's mercy is for you. Come to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus, the perfect picture of righteousness and mercy coming together. We praise you that you are just and the justifier of those who believe. So God, help us rejoice that you're a good and merciful God. And for everything else, would you give us the wisdom we need to live for Christ? Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.